Samantha, welcome to the Layman's Doctor podcast where we're bringing medicine home. Um, if you're having some issue with the audio, it's because we're recording this online. We're practicing social distancing. We're recording this on the 22nd of March and you know that COVID-19 is here in Jamaica. Today we'll be talking about COVID-19, all about it, everything about it. And I have a guest with me here, Dr. Johan White. I'm going to leave him to introduce himself and tell us all about him. And um, he's been doing a lot of stuff and advocacy around COVID-19 as well. Great. Thank you, Samantha. Good to be here. And um, just a little bit about me. I'm from the um, medical class of 2007, UWI Mona, University of the West Indies Mona. When I finished med- medical school, nearly immediately after, I went to pursue a doctor of philosophy degree focusing on disorders of the immune system, um, specifically chronic viral infections in a cohort of patients in Japan that I followed up for a few years. And after that, I left to do a post PhD or what we call a postdoc. Um, working with the U.S. military, working on vaccines for diseases that we don't yet have safe and effective vaccines for. And then since 2017, I've been in Jamaica um, working around infectious diseases, vaccines, and conditions that affect our immune system or our body's defenses against germs. Okay, all I'm hearing is that you're the perfect person right now for me to talk about COVID-19 with. Um, wow, that's re- I And that's that's the thing, I didn't even know a lot of these things that you did before. But um, I, just knew, I just knew that once COVID-19 came out and I needed to have you on here so we can have a discussion about it. Um, I see you in your own space on Twitter, which is where I follow you most, and on WhatsApp stories as well, um, just talking about this virus. So let's just go really basic here. What What is COVID-19? Great. Um, so COVID-19 refers to coronavirus disease 2019. It is actually the disease that results from infection with the virus, which is called SARS coronavirus 2 or severe acute respiratory syndrome vi- coronavirus 2, which is related to SARS that we saw in 2003. So SARS-CoV-2 is the germ or the virus and the disease is coronavirus uh, disease 2019 COVID-19 okay and this is they had changed the name recently it was novel coronavirus before right and it's changed to that right so it just points to the fact that this is a new disease a new Mm -hmm. term and very little um was known about um this virus and information continues to be produced um, in high volumes on a daily basis. And sometimes the things that we understood initially um, have to be updated. And we there are still many questions that remain about this, um, about this condition. It is a novel coronavirus. So a new virus has emerged from um, a particular environment in which wildlife was um, exposed humans were exposed to wildlife that carried different types of viruses and there was the opportunity for a sort of super virus to emerge out of that setting in China. And it 
jumped into humans and, you know, including, for example, the vendors who were selling um, these wildlife in China and the vendors' families and the vendors' customers, subsequently healthcare workers, patients who came into the hospitals there for different reasons also started getting ill and family members of those patients and family members of um, healthcare workers and subsequently um, the whole world is now facing um, this, this public health challenge. It is able to spread as fast as it does because of features of the virus itself, number one, but two, and perhaps more importantly, we have no immunity or no protection against this virus because our immune systems have never encountered this virus before. And so everyone is um, susceptible or vulnerable to infection with, with this virus. So I remember a conversation that I had with you um, a couple weeks back, a couple, a couple weeks back, mm-hmm. um, I had a still up in the air whether it was a flu or a cold. More than likely, it was a cold. I didn't have a fever. Um, it was just some sniffles that was making me really uncomfortable. And I remember us very specifically having a conversation between the influenza and the coronavirus, which is what usually causes like the common cold. It's usually not such a. It's a usually a milder um, infection that we can tend to get over, but. We're seeing now that with COVID nineteen, that the symptom it can. We're seeing that it's more reflective of when SARS was around and when MERS was around, and it's no longer. It's no longer just in quotes the cold. Um, right. Um, coronaviruses have, in fact, as a group or as a family of viruses, been with us for a very long time, and they account for what we know as a common cold. So the sniffles, mm-hmm. the running nose, a little funny, funny feeling in your throat, maybe a little cough that we're used to. But this particular virus, this novel coronavirus 2019, SARS-CoV-2, is different because it has features that allows it to spread easily. One, two... It is associated with um, high, higher, relatively higher mortality or deaths from infection. And a part of it is that this virus can directly damage the lung tissue. So our breathing passage and our lungs, which are like these big sponges in our chest that absorbs oxygen so that it can pass it around to our brain, to our, our bodies, our heart. Um, but the virus, um, SARS-CoV-2, can directly damage that sponsored tissue. In addition to that, it also causes our body to respond in a very aggressive way because our immune system is trying to clear this virus. But sometimes our immune system can be excessive or it results in sort of bystander damage to the rest of the lung tissue and and to our bodies. Um, Many of the symptoms of respiratory viruses in general, including the common cold or flu or influenza or um, COVID-19 may be similar. There's a lot of overlap, but there are certain things that we look out for to try to determine um, which one it's it's most likely to be. Of course, one of them is exposure. So if you've been traveling um, and if you've been in Wuhan, China or any area where there's active transmission of SARS-CoV-2 now and any symptoms whatsoever, that is a 
red flag for us that you may um, have COVID-19. But apart from that, the common cold usually gives you mild symptoms. So a runny nose, um, maybe a little funny feeling in your throat, maybe a slight fever for some people, maybe a mild cough, but your energy level is intact, your appetite is intact, and you're able to go about your normal business. You're able to go to work. You may have to blow your nose often, um, and it's a little inconvenient, but you can concentrate and you can get your work done. As opposed to flu, um, which is very similar, has very similar symptoms to COVID-19, or in other words, COVID-19 has very similar symptoms to the flu, you get more systemic um, symptoms. So you feel ill. So you may have a headache, you may have a sore throat with either the flu or um, COVID-19. You can have muscle pain, joint pains. You also feel sick, tired, like you want to be in bed. And this can be seen in influenza. This can be seen in COVID-19, um, loss of appetite, um, and depending on how much virus you have in your body, then the symptoms can be more severe. Some persons also have symptoms outside of the chest. So that includes, for example, diarrhea um, and some persons even vomiting or feeling as if they want to vomit. Um, but with COVID-19 in particular, the most common thing that will happen in COVID-19 is that most people may have no symptoms at all or they may have mild symptoms that look like a common cold. But there are some persons, perhaps one in every five persons or two out of every five people will have severe disease because they develop shortness of breath and require some assistance in a supervised setting like a hospital. So I know that we, we have a case definition, you know, fever, cough, shortness of breath or difficulty breathing, and then these symptoms come in around two to 14 days after you've had some exposure, whether from traveling or being around someone who has traveled. The thing with all these symptoms is that nobody's going to have all of them. Um, you'll have, everybody will have their own constellation of signs and symptoms. You, of course, sneezing can be one of them. Shortness of breath can be one of them. Sore throat. But, you know, we may say, for example, that sore throat is more common with the flu. And it can be seen in COVID-19, but nothing is absolute. It can be seen in COVID-19. You can see diarrhea. One in 10 persons who come to hospital with severe disease have diarrhea. One in 10. And it's usually associated with more severe disease because of the risk of dehydration and other complications. Um, so there's no absolute combination of symptoms. Some people will have fever. Some people won't have fever. Some people will sneeze and some won't sneeze. Because even if it's not a symptom and we have other reasons to sneeze, if you do have COVID-19, sneezing is one of the ways in which the droplets are spread. So even if you sneeze for another reason and you have COVID, you could spread, you will spread the droplets. I, I want to just bring up the date again, because again, today is March the 22nd. It's um, every time that we talk about this new virus and the disease that it cause, causes, the information seems to be changing all the time because we're doing this, all of this is in real time now. So you brought up a point that a lot of persons may not even have any symptoms and the conversation has been going towards social distancing um, hand washing, but also testing, 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 because we're now learning that 
persons can be, I believe, asymptomatic but still pass it on or just have milder symptoms and still be passing on the virus. Right. Every day we learn more about this condition and we, the world is under a lot of pressure to put public health measures in place to try to stem the spread of this disease and to mitigate the impact that it will have on our health system. Now, depending on where in your epidemic you are as a country or a society, then the strategies that you implement may have to change. Um, so for example, if you want to prevent introduction of infections from overseas into your population, then aggressive monitoring of your ports of entry would be critical. Um, if you are having local spread, so from imported cases, but now to contacts of imported cases and other contacts of contacts of imported cases and spread or infections or cases that you can't identify any specific exposure, like a, a, a short contact with somebody who was known to have COVID-19 or any travel history, then that suggests local spread or community spread. As those numbers go up, your strategy has to adapt to what's happening. And so social distancing, the purpose of that is to prevent people from being in grouped settings or um, where the opportunity is there for spreading um, these infections, this infection. So you close schools, you um, advise against, or you putting measures to decrease um, um, social gatherings, and you encourage persons to stay home. So, but that is not enough or may not be enough when the scenario um, starts to get worse. So as you rightfully pointed out initially, we, it was believed from the data coming out of other countries that um, most of the spread was attributable to persons with symptoms. But we now know that it is true that persons with symptoms are more likely to have more virus. And if you have more virus, you're more likely to spread. And they have more virus because there's something compromised with their immune system. And therefore, they don't have a strong um, response to the virus or an impaired ability to clear the virus. And so they carry more virus and they're more sick for a longer period of time, and they therefore shed more virus. So it is true that persons with symptoms tend to be more infectious or more easily pass on infection. However, we do know that a significant number of persons may not display any symptoms, or it may be that they're in the phase where they're incubating or not yet showing symptoms, but they're carrying an infection. If those persons are allowed to roam about or to be in contact with other persons, then that facilitates spread. And so at a particular part of your epidemic or in the early stage of your epidemic, finding these positive individuals will be important. And the main strategy that we've observed here is for public health officials to basically chase after the contacts of known cases of COVID-19 and to interview them and to see how long they spent time together, what they did together, if they lived in the same house, and then to sort of isolate those persons from the community, whether or not they have symptoms. But so far, testing, the purpose of which is to identify people with this virus, 
is focused on persons with symptoms. And therefore, there is the possibility that some persons without symptoms or, or with mild symptoms may be missed from this approach. And therefore, there's an opportunity for those persons to um, spread infection to, to others. Okay, so we're, I feel like we're watching, using Jamaica as an example, and you talked about the different steps that you take based on where you are in the, in the, um, in this pandemic. We saw where Jamaica had its first imported case. Um, eventually we have moved to the point where our borders are now closed off, except for, I think, cargo, um, We've also seen where we're because we're having local spread now that uh, that schools are closed. They've been closed for a while now. More and more businesses are either asking you to work from home or they're just completely closed themselves. But I know I know we're seeing a lot of we're seeing a lot of information about prevention out there. And Social distancing, yes. Um, staying at home, not going out. Um, staying. I also interpret it as even if you're in a house with somebody, also want to try and stay some distance from them as well. Um, but uh, we are we're basically trying to prevent this from getting any worse than it is now. So we're having communities quarantined. Um, we're having persons isolated. And I think that I feel as though eventually we will start to low, maybe lower our threshold for testing. Um, and even when persons may not fully meet the criteria of the case definition, um, that we will also start doing some testing. Tests, there, there's an availability issue and a part of it is a slow recognition of how serious this pandemic is by countries where the manufacturers are located. So by the time they got the memo, they've had to now be scrambling to ramp up their production to meet their own needs there, as opposed to if they'd heeded much earlier and put certain things in place, then there would have been enough. But you know, there's a point in your epidemic when you have more testing capacity than how your cases are emerging, but it's really a balancing act and a timing um, issue in terms of when to deploy that testing capacity to find the positives and to try to interrupt transmission. Because there will come a point, as we've observed for other countries where your the cases emerge so quickly that you're you're just overwhelmed and you the testing means nothing at that point really um, and you won't be able to to test and isolate because it's a wildfire by that point um, so it's really a timing issue and it's really following the science and observing what worked in societies where it worked. Um, and also to see the consequences of not doing certain things by a certain time. So, you know, we still have a window of opportunity where I hope we can get that right because to think otherwise is, is just really, really concerning. I wish we were doing the South Korea strategy, which is 
to test and find the cases and isolate them before you um, countries really the countries that have seen their health systems get ravaged really are the ones who did not pay attention to South Korea's strategy. Um, that's what that's where you really want to pour in your resources prevention. Um, but you know, it's very easy to miss that boat if we if we don't pay attention to where we are in the in the epidemic pandemic. Um, so it's it's really just there's so much uncertainty and um, it's an enormous challenge that lies ahead. It's really really a different wow. time. But um, right. Just to interject here to say that. Mm-hmm. Jamaica has taken very decisive steps and there has been strong leadership from our public health officials and there has been a whole of government approach. In fact, Jamaica has been more decisive in implementing these social distancing or physical distancing measures um, well ahead of some countries who delayed those activities and are now um, seeing the consequences of that delay. However, the purpose of doing that is to try to slow the spread in the community um, such that you don't end up having so many cases and so many infections that everybody turns up to your health system on Monday morning or on one day or within a short period of time because the health system does not have the capacity to deal with that many cases and so by distancing people from each other the spread is slowed in the community and the cases emerge at a slower rate and so the cases are spread over a longer period of time and the hope is that if they come in or the cases are are arising at at a slower rate then your health system maybe can cope with those cases, but it will be over a longer period of time. However, even with that measure or those measures and decreasing um, the number of infections, the numbers that result can still be overwhelming for um, our health system, especially in a developing country context, because we need only look at very wealthy countries, how their health systems have, in fact, um, essentially crumbled under the number of cases that they've seen. So in a way, it buys us time to be able to do something else. And a part of that, in in my opinion, and from my observation of the science and the data that's coming out of other countries, for example, South Korea, um, Thailand, Taiwan, et cetera, um, identifying the positive cases or persons with infection who may have mild symptoms or no symptoms is important so that they can be so that they can be isolated to interrupt the spread um, of those infect of that infection. Okay, you brought up well you brought up a lot of stuff. <laughs> so um I've seen a lot about flattening the curve. Mm-hmm. So this is what we're talking about. And I know that in terms of being decisive, I know that the WHO basically said big ups to Jamaica for the action that we're taking. Um, taking. And you have to appreciate um, the Ministry of Health and the government 
for for what they're doing and what they're trying to do in order to to try and prevent this 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 disease from getting worse um but when you were talking about all the measures that we're taking in an effort to slow down, does that have anything to do with flatten the curve? I've been seeing it a lot. Yes, yes. Um, that is the that is the term assigned to that that strategy, which is to, okay. instead of having a a peak in your cases in a very short peak period of time, you spread out those cases so you flatten that peak, you flatten that curve. Um, to make the cases essentially to slow the pace at which cases develop and present at your health facilities. Um, but you know, scientists have raised the concern that how long can one have those measures in place? Um, is it really 14 days? Is that adequate? Or is it going to be a month or two months or three months? So it's really, um, there's some uncertainty about how long um, countries will need to implement such measures. Um, but for sure, a part of it is also buying time to put other measures in place, such as um, beefing up your health systems so getting ventilators, personal protective equipment for your healthcare workers, um, getting testing capacity in place, um, identifying quarantine and isolation and health um, you know, supplementary facilities to deal with the cases. It's really, it's really to buy time. But you know, countries face an immense challenge um, with with what is ahead. But we also know from countries that have not only flattened their peak but actually cut their cases very rapidly and seen a decline in a very short period of time, such as South Korea. That was associated with expanded testing at a very early stage in their epidemic before the cases go beyond your country's testing capacity, because at some point the surge will be so much that it will vaporize your resources in terms of laboratory support for testing, et cetera. So that sort of a strategy is appropriate for just about where we are where we are in our um, epidemic right now, um, because there may actually never be this window of opportunity again um, to find those positive cases that may be responsible for spread in the community. And yes, there's an the argument that persons with symptoms do spread um, infection more easily, but persons without symptoms are maybe at about 50% as likely to pass on infection. And that's a lot because persons without symptoms or with mild symptoms significantly outnumber the cases with severe symptoms. And so by virtue of that larger number, they're responsible for driving the epidemic, pandemic. So what we're, so what we're seeing now, what we're doing is with um with all these measures that we're taking, it's all in an effort to find persons who test positive for the virus and then having them removed from the community or from or having them isolated so that they can decrease how much how much 
mm, I don't want to say contact, but how much how much they're able to spread the virus. Right. Um, that are doing that, and we okay. in Jamaica are not yet doing that. We are testing only persons with symptoms. Oh, so we're not there. It's so it kind of sounds like we're doing half of it. Mm-hmm. So it sounds like we're we're doing the okay, stay at home. Um, stay at home, don't go to school, but we haven't yet started the testing right. part as it were. From, from my observation, but, you know, the measures that are being taken are updated um, regularly. And, you know, those of us in the public health community and scientists would hope that at some point we're not only testing um persons with symptoms, but we are testing um, to identify persons without symptoms who may be responsible for for spread. It is our hope that that strategy will be adjusted and implemented. Currently, as you mentioned earlier, there are specific criteria that have to be met for testing to be done. And that's for surveillance purposes. And in a way, those who come to your health facility, usually those with more severe disease, um, will be tested if they meet certain criteria such as symptoms plus travel history in the past 14 days or contact with a person confirmed to have had um, COVID-19. Those are the persons who are prioritized for testing at this point. So what I want to know is if they start just testing persons who have milder symptoms or who are asymptomatic, is it kind of a test-all approach or will they also have criteria for that? Because then we can't, we can't, we have to bring up our resources. And if we're actually physically in real life able to to do this, to take on that approach, right? That's an excellent question. So mass testing is not something that I've heard being advocated, which is different from strategic testing. So, for example, rather than just contact tracing or looking for contacts of persons known to have COVID-19 and then interviewing them and then only testing those that have symptoms, maybe a more strategic approach would be testing all the contacts of these persons known to have COVID-19 because even if they don't have symptoms now, they may be incubating, may have been exposed and possibly could Um, develop symptoms later and if your trigger for testing is developing symptoms then they may be in the community with infection unknowingly and persons may become infected from exposure to them Um, so that is more strategic testing as well as testing healthcare workers who are on the front line and may have frequent exposure with um cases of of COVID-19 because if the status of the healthcare worker is not known, then they could become um, a focus of spread to other patients, to other healthcare workers. So that's what we mean by more strategic testing, which is somewhere between mass testing and somewhere between just testing people with symptoms. And there is a stage in your epidemic locally where that will be useful and if one waits too long then there will be a point when it is no longer um um practical to 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 do that okay so let's shift shift to healthcare workers for a moment Mm -hmm. um 
I, I made a tweet earlier this week about just basically saying, close your eyes. Imagine if you tested positive for COVID-19 um, or rather SARS-CoV-2. Is it SARS-CoV-2? Yes, SARS-CoV-2. Coronavirus 2. So imagine that you tested positive for that and then just think about all the persons who would have to get tested or be quarantined or be isolated. And and I basically said, imagine a healthcare worker, right? Because, and I tweeted it simply because I was imagining it. If I come in contact with so many people um just by being at work not just patients but also other other healthcare um personnel and that could really mean that i could put a lot of persons out and it could decrease our ability to treat and respond to this crisis so i i agree that persons that who are on the front lines, we need to know their status. And then this is such a timely conversation because just today, as I said, today is March 22nd, um, that Sunday, March 22nd, when an article came, an article came out um, that has, been, has since been retracted about um, healthcare workers testing positive um, or persons being on the front line. And when, you saw, when we see this article, it kind of, I, for me and for my work group, when we had the conversation, it brings back the reality that we are at risk. But because we're at such a great risk, us testing positive can be catastrophic for the response. So with that, how do we how do we try to keep the the numbers down or or keep them to remain at zero? And how do we continue to protect healthcare workers? I don't know if it would be catastrophic to <laughs> know one status if, in fact, you have COVID-19 or you're infected with SARS-CoV-2 because it would provide the opportunity to do an intervention, which is to isolate yes. or quarantine that individual. And so what I mean by... Interfere with spread. So what would for me what would have been catastrophic is not knowing. So we would just be passing it on, passing it on, passing it on. Right, and creating more mm-hmm. cases. Mm-hmm. The concern is that if persons are positive and then you have to pull them from the front line, um, it may have an impact in our ability to deliver care. But I think the former um, um, argument um, is a stronger argument that you don't want to have healthcare workers who may have this infection potentially passing passing it on to others is a real concern. Um, You know, there's so much information coming out about this condition and how it's spread and what interventions may work. And, you know, over 100, 160 plus countries have seen cases before Jamaica. And so there's a lot of opportunity to learn what has worked and what has not worked and to see how we can um, adapt our response as we go along. Um, Protecting healthcare workers is going to be critical, Um, equipping them with uh, appropriate protective gear and having proper infection control um, 
systems in place and training in place are going to be critical. Persons with mild symptoms um, or symptoms that are moderate who can be managed at home, it is better for them to stay home but understand when it is important to pick up the phone and call a physician or a hospital or the Ministry of Health um, if you're not improving. So that public education and sensitization will be important because the health system will not be able to accommodate every symptomatic person. The health system is really reserved for persons with severe disease who are having difficulty breathing, um, you know, significant shortness of breath, or having um, a lot of symptoms, including chest and perhaps gastrointestinal symptoms and other symptoms that puts them at risk for dehydration and other complications, but also individuals who we've observed have not coped well with this infection, which includes mostly the elderly. So persons over 80, persons over 70, persons over 60 are more prone, especially if they have um, other underlying medical conditions, such as high blood pressure or sugar, diabetes or heart failure, kidney disease, or any chronic medical condition. But we have also seen cases of younger persons, um, you know, 20s, 30s, who have also not coped well with disease. So, so this, the deaths that have been observed, even though they're fewer than maybe one in a hundred or even far fewer than that, um, have been skewed towards the elderly, yes, but there have been, um, you know, unfortunately fatal cases in, in younger age groups. For sure, chronic medical conditions seems to put persons at an even greater risk of not coping well um, with this condition. But, but, you know, most people do recover and most people bounce right back. And that will be the situation going forward. But, you know, we do have enough people who fall within those risk, high risk categories to still overwhelm our health system. Definitely. I I like the part about stra um stratifying patients and um treating some of them at home because for years and years we've we've always been talking about that our health facilities aren't growing with our health population and it re it very well could easily overwhelm a lot of the health facilities. Um so knowing that we have in place or that it is a possibility that these persons can be treated at home and, and knowing when to escalate. So I know that I know that other countries, especially Wuhan, China, they have put out um I, I don't know if I should call them protocols, but kind of like said from their experience, um, things that they they did well and things that they didn't do well. I know a lot of persons have been talking against not using protective equipment um when when going to treat because um they had in well there are instances where sometimes you know um you decide to treat a patient even without proper protective gear um of your own and they've spoken um I'm, i don't want to say they to mean specifically wuhan china because i'm not 100 percent sure of where i was reading it from or if it was, I know they had used that example with other outbreaks where this is something that we don't want to do. We want to always ensure that we are properly and appropriately um, protected. Other countries have 
used have been using medical students um recently our own government has has asked medical students to volunteer uh somebody asked me the question and what i said to them was you know if they're going to ask them um it has to be a case where they're they're um they're protected whether by through personal protective equipment or the the whatever work they're doing does not put them at risk mm-hmm. and i was just saying you know it's a great time for them to basically use their platform to to spread um correct information about the virus so a, a lot of persons are up in the air about whether or not medical students should be involved i don't know if you want to give your opinion on it what you think well, the response will require um volunteers from all sectors all walks of life including um medical students because you know we have a fairly good educational system but it will be important manpower there are specific tasks that could be efficiently executed by um, medical students under supervision or with clear um, communication and proper training. Um, um, But, you know, it may be a better pool to call upon than, say, retired nurses. Agreed. Um, I did see that announcement. Not that retired nurses... um, can be helpful, but they fall in the demographic that is at high risk for not doing well with this condition. But there are things that can be done in the response that are not frontline work. So educational mm-hmm. activities, communication activities, manning the phones, um, you know, that sort of a you know administrative support can can be useful. But you know, I've talked to a few retired persons and you know they I've met persons who were not interested but I've also heard of stories where persons have you know volunteered despite having um, retired so you know there is a place for everyone in this response there is certainly a place for every person in terms of our personal practices that could um, reduce our risk of infection which is um, avoiding large crowds washing our, our hands frequently cough and sneeze etiquette, staying away from people who exhibit flu-like symptoms, um, you know, um, refraining from travel. Um, those steps are really important in reducing the spread in the community. And so every single person does in fact have a role to play um, in this response. I agree. And one thing I would say though, is for persons who who come on to volunteer i i i don't i don't have i can't tell somebody what to do or for me i can't tell them if they should or they shouldn't i just for the persons who have spoken to me about it one who have asked me about it i've always just said i think it has to be completely up to them whether they choose to volunteer or not and as you alluded to we really do have a responsibility to ensure that persons who volunteer or who are employed in this response are adequately protected. So, and protection means providing the appropriate protective gear, but also the appropriate training. 
um, yes. in terms of how to conduct themselves and safety training and all of that will also be critical. I That's definitely in terms of that, because I think we think that just having the PPEs um, is enough. That's a personal protective equipment. But I was in a session um, just last week and we were learning how to done and doff the equipment. And it was one of, I know, I know the different types of masks. I know the different types of gowns and so on. But this was the first time I was doing it. And it's a, it's a, it's very easy to, to, to mess up, especially if you're not doing it consistently. So I, I just remember just there, cause I was the, I was the, the, the example. I volunteered to be the example and putting on the masks, for example, you know, just doing that properly, um, putting on the, the, eye, the protective eyewear and the fact that when you're taking off, you have to sanitize in between. Like there are a lot of small steps that are so easy to mess up, even how you just take off your gloves. And unless we have, conti- I, I'm not confident, I will say that I'm not confident after just one session that I know how to do it properly. It's something that I would have to have continuous um training and refreshing on. But luckily when you are doing that, you do have a body with you who kind of ensures that it is done properly. And if there is at any point, any point of contamination that you're able to kind of recover from that. But it's, it's, it's ju- it's not enough just to have it. You have to have the training on top of it as well. And I think I think I'm known to be um uh someone who talks a lot about um protecting healthcare workers and healthcare workers I think I know at this time we have to ensure that we are we speak up and we're on we're we're comfortable with saying I don't I'm not I'm not comfortable or I don't think I'm adequately trained or um I need I need my mask, I need my gloves, whatever, I need my protective equipment before going on to do um something that might potentially put you at risk. Indeed. Indeed. And, you know, preparedness for, for pandemics is something that really ought to be built in our medical education, um, in our disaster preparedness as a country. Infection prevention and control, there's a huge gap there in our education um, from medical school days, even during, um, you know, active duty. So there's a a very big gap in those two areas. Um, it really should be standard that we're prepared and trained in these procedures and not when we face a huge public health crisis. So, you know, that is something that I hope to see addressed when we do get through COVID-19. Definitely, because um, I, I, I'm class of 2019, so I'm about one year fresh out of med school, not even a whole year, but uh, just looking back, I just recall just having classes on the different types of protective equipment, but not necessarily learning 
um, the proper way to put on everything. And there wasn't, it was almost as if we were taught about pandemics and um, public health crises in a bubble. Like, you know, this isn't going to happen. The last one was maybe 2003, whatever, you know, but these are some things that will be there to protect you. Um, and it wasn't, it wasn't stressed, but now that we're in this situation, what I really hope to see when we do come over the hill is that a, there's a lot of policy change. And one of the biggest ones is just, uh, for me, is also just how they build healthcare facilities where it's not just where our healthcare facilities are prepared for situations like this in terms of um isolation rooms um having different roads where you can direct persons so they're not coming in they don't have to come in contact with the general population stuff like that just kind of to update how we build or expand our buildings and then including stuff like this in our curriculum so that students when they become new doctors, they already have at least at minimum a baseline knowledge of infection control, and that we just we're just more we come out as a as a cleaner society in terms of hand washing. Um, we have a huge problem with personal space. You know, you're in the line and someone just itch up behind you. You know, I'm really hoping that a lot of these things just stick. Um, with they stick for us. Um, it's it's going to be interesting to see how we progress and how we deal, and interesting to see how we recover because a lot of social issues are coming out, but also we're showing a lot of strengths that we have as a country. Yes, I've seen decisive lead leadership and um, implementation of various strategies to mitigate. Um, this pandemic really its impact on our country and in fact perhaps would feel even safer than if I were in some other countries now um, so that's a good thing but it's really important for complacency not to creep in and for us to keep abreast of the very new information that emerges every day and to adjust our strategy as this information becomes available that's going to be really important and also to, in, to be inclusive um, because discussion um, generates ideas and I think keeps us accountable um, in this response. So I, you know, we have to be careful that we don't fall trap, fall into the trap of, of groupthink and not entertain views that are different from our own because out of those discussions will come innovative ways of responding um to this to this challenge here exactly um i don't know if you have anything else the masks um interestingly there's no strong evidence to support that they protect people who don't have infection from infection the mask is really for persons with symptoms or persons who are ill or persons with infection let me say that because even if you don't have symptoms if you're found to be infected you should be given a mask so that that you are prevented from having your droplets travel a whole meter or two meters or three to six feet. That is a real purpose of the mask in holding back the droplets, like literally a physical barrier over your mouth and nose to prevent the droplets 
from going on to if, infect somebody else. But if you are not infected, the mask really doesn't serve um, you any real purpose, neither do gloves. As healthcare workers, mm -hmm. we use gloves once and we discard them immediately after and then we wash our hands. So for persons that you'll see walking in the city with their gloves, it really does two things. One, it prevents you from doing what you need, you really need to be doing, which is washing your hands. And it's also just going to spread germs anyway, all over the place. And they're disposable gloves, they should be disposed of after a single use. Um, so, you know, masks and gloves, if you're not a healthcare worker, really does not um, provide any real benefit to persons if they're trying to prevent infection. It, it, you know, washing your hands is going to be how you do that and cough and sneeze etiquette and staying away from ill people and staying home. That is a strategy that's used in Hong Kong, which made me rethink the mask issue. But if I were going to support the mask as a, an intervention tool now, there's no wide evidence to say that this actually works in Hong Kong, but because they recognize that persons could have no symptoms or mild symptoms and be walking around spreading it. If everybody wears masks, then you would cover the mouths and noses of persons who potentially have infection, but no symptoms. And in fact, yeah, one of the professors in at Hong Kong University who discovered SARS back in 2003, commented on that strategy for Hong Kong, you know, but where are you gonna get so many masks and doctors don't have enough masks? They would also ha we'd also have to talk about proper mask etiquette at that point where because you know if if you're not wearing a mask correctly if you're touching your face if you're not taking it off when it's wet um if you're reusing the same mask it also almost kind of defeats the purpose and i think yeah. the reality is that we can't we at this point we can't have that strategy because we don't have the resources here mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because even with that, we when we're doing our masking, if I enter a room, as soon as I exit that room, I'm supposed to discard my mask. And if I go back in, I'm supposed to put on. It's just like me wearing the gloves. As soon as I'm done with that pair of gloves, I need to take it off and put on a new one if I'm going to do something else. Mm. But then the other thing is, um, with the masks, we see people walking with surgical masks. But I've seen persons in dust masks, painters' masks. Um, I know persons went online and bought N95 masks. Apart from the surgical and the N95 masks, it's just like, okay, those are useful. I know that for N95, those are specifically for when we have aerosols. You know, if we're going to um, make, if we're going to do ventilation, intubation, stuff like that. My fear is that we we already heard the Prime Minister talk about persons stealing from the hospital resources to sell. Um that if we start if we if we move maybe if we move if we don't properly talk about masks and how they should be worn based on the evidence, then it, it's just going to really shorten our supplies. If it was that everybody could get a thousand masks per person, all right, then that's fine. But I just can't, we just don't have those resources at all. We we don't. And, you know, there's no evidence behind them if you're trying to prevent yourself from becoming infected. Um, 
So the public education definitely needs to be there to um, dissuade people from relying on a strategy that's not evidence-based. But also what is very unfortunate is that people can steal from their health sector. Um, and it, it's not a new issue. It's an ongoing chronic problem, but it is most unfortunate. I, it is depressing. I don't know. I just hope that we can put measures in place to um, prevent easy access to, to the items that we need and yeah. also so that we can hold these thieves accountable. The thing is, Johan, is that when the, when the prime minister said out loud to the public that persons were stealing, it gave a lot of persons permission to speak publicly about something that we already knew. Because each each doctor that I spoke to around that time, because when it came out, you know, a lot of the group chats were like, Andrew Sate, you know, Andrew Sate. But a lot of us had our own stories about personal protective equipment going missing as soon as there was an announcement. You know, boxes of upon boxes of masks were, were just gone. And you knew it was somebody within the system because these are places that the lay person or a patient doesn't have access to. So you know it's somebody who is actually working at the hospital. And then it to me, I I my article last week was about protecting healthcare workers. Um, in the face of COVID-19. And it's it spoke about the fact that everybody who is a healthcare worker needs to be appropriately educated because we're seeing our security guards or porters and stuff in incorrect masks, with incorrect mask etiquette, and also in gloves. So if if the doctors are the only ones who know when to properly use them, gloves and masks or otherwise then that is not going to be enough because you have to frontline workers also include your securities, your porters, your um your janitors, your PCs. Those persons also need to have the appropriate levels of education in terms of how to protect themselves and how the virus can be transmitted. Indeed. I mean I just hope that we we can hold these people accountable and it's a most unfortunate thing that says something about us as a society i i was very very surprised i i, mm. I don't even have words um it's just unfortunate but i hope we can okay. stem, stem that that practice and that issue yes what i don't want it to sound as though is that i am pinpointing who and who is stealing what because mm. i don't know we don't know who it is could very well be anybody mm-hmm. but if everybody just, I think if everybody had this, maybe not the same, but if everybody had the facts correct, maybe it could help that, but also it could, it could help everybody else also protect themselves appropriately. I just wanted to clear that up. I didn't want anyone to listen to this and say, hey, Samantha is pointing fingers. I'm not. I'm not. But um, I was very upset when I heard that. I know a lot of persons were. Um, and I can just imagine how frontline workers feel because a lot of, um, I currently am not a frontline worker, um, per se. Um, but I can just imagine how they felt 
knowing that yourself you just yourself is just gone uh-huh. one day it's announced one person in the island has it and boxes upon boxes of stuff just just gone like that yeah but also to be held accountable are the persons who are buying these boxes of things. If you're buying mm. something from somebody who's not a licensed distributor for these things, um, then you're complicit in, in exactly. In so, you know, a most unfortunate thing. I, I'm, as I say, I'm very, very taken aback um, by by that observation. I'm I'm glad that he said it. Yeah. Um. I think, and I think, I think that uh, in this, a lot of things are being kept. I don't want to say a lot of things. Some things are being kept hush hush, maybe, because we we didn't want to maybe put a negative light. So I think that's why a lot of persons didn't say outright that these things were happening. So to know that the government is willing to 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 keep people accountable for doing these things. Um, I think it gives us permission to to voice to voice further voice these gaps that we're having, um, the fur- further voice gaps that we're not seeing being fulfilled. And it was a good opportunity for them to show that they are responsive. Cause even though we're seeing well, I personally am seeing where more and more persons who have interacted with like the hotlines they're okay with voicing their their concerns with it or the shortcomings of it and i just want i want the government um hospital administration and everyone who's involved just to take these criticisms constructively in an effort to basically improve the response so with the thieving no we know we need to have better accountability we need to have stuff maybe locked up um, and we need to kind of monitor and persons who are involved with our buying or selling have to have some form of punishment. Um, we know that when persons are increasing the prices of masks, gloves, hand sanitizers, Lysol, that those persons are also kept accountable and places are encouraged to decrease, not really allow persons to buy out every single thing. Um, and so we're seeing all these little mistakes and these little gaps and these what I call acts of selfishness and measures are put in place that can decrease all of this. Yes, very important, very critical. Yeah, but, you know, this thing is also different. Um, We've not seen anything like this since 1918 when we had the Spanish flu, the influenza um, that killed about 50 million people worldwide, which is like one tenth of the world's population. Um, and it's like a whole replay of that today. Fortunately, we have better technology, for example, to sequence the virus in record time and have that data available for people to make test kits and be able to diagnose it, etc. So we have better technology now, but the challenge is, is probably just as enormous. So um, just to close off, I this conversation was really, I really liked it. It wasn't, it was, we didn't just talk about hand washing, but of course, definitely want to, to promote prevention, you know, wash your hands for 20 seconds with soap. Um, if you don't have, 
if you're unable to use soap, use a good amount of hand sanitizer. Um, not just a little tops, you know, social distancing. Don't go out if you don't have to. Stay away from persons who are ill. Please don't be afraid that if you do feel ill or you know someone who is ill, just to contact the emergency hotlines, which will be linked in the show notes. And um, for healthcare workers, you know, I'm always batting for us. Make sure that you know your hospital protocols or your health center protocols. Ensure that you go to your trainings that you feel appropriately trained and that you are comfortable. Um, don't be afraid to speak up. Don't put yourself at risk and don't put persons at risk, um, patients at risk. Um, you have any closing remarks, Johan? Um, anything that you want, where can we find you if you want to, sh- if you want to do that? Um, um, I'm just grateful for this opportunity to have this discussion. I think we need to have more discussions like this and people should be encouraged to share their ideas and to, if they see gaps in the response in their communities, it's really important to speak with their representatives and share their ideas and point out these concerns. I can be contacted on social media. Um, my social media handle is at Caribe Wellness. So Caribe as in the first part of Caribbean Wellness, Caribe Wellness. And that's on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Okay. Thank you so much for coming. I really appreciate you um, coming on here and having this conversation with me. Um, I, do, I think this will be the first of many conversations um, about at least on my side, about um, the coronavirus. I know that other medical personnel have been going on, other um, places just on TV, online, talking about it. I'm loving, I'm loving this new age social media, the fact that we can share information so quickly and that a lot of doctors are willing to share information and to use their platforms to share correct information as well yeah it's also a learning process for me but i i really try to follow the information that's coming out because when you're deep in the response i'm afraid it seems that they don't have time to follow the science and then you know you're seeing these gaps so um, it's a the information is overwhelming because every day Every day I get something new and I'm just like, I haven't read everything about this. We're all going to be coronavirologists after this. <laughs> yes. If you want to follow me um, or reach out to me, you can do so on social media. I'm on Instagram and on Twitter. I'm at the layman's doctor. That's written as at the layman's dr. If you have any comments, questions, you know, you might be featured on one of these episodes, please email me at thelaymansdoctor at gmail.com. And on any platform that you're listening to this, um, please subscribe, rate it, and don't forget to leave a review. Stay safe out there. Practice your social distancing. Practice your hand washing, proper hand washing techniques. Um, thank you so much for listening. Until next time. <music>